Welcome to Vineyard Hopkinton. As we follow Jesus together, we experience the Holy Spirit, create a multicultural community, and pursue kingdom of God justice. Amen. Amen. Well, guys, this morning we are looking at what is a very familiar uh, story to some of us as we talk about the inbreaking of God. We're talking about the three wise men. They were very uh, surprising first worshipers of Jesus. So we're going to see what they teach us about Jesus's welcome, what they teach us about the kingdom of God, what they teach us about what it means to seek and search out God and the difference, the impact that that makes. Some of you may know a little bit about the wise men from like a nativity set, but guys, there is a lot of fake news out there about the wise men. So who were these guys? Well, they were not necessarily three of them. There are three gifts probably more people. Some people say there's a whole caravan because Jerusalem was like all abuzz about them. So they're like these guys with families rolling into town and created a stir. Um, Three gifts, but probably more people. And they were astrologists or astronomers. Back in the day, there wasn't really a difference between the legitimate scientific study and the more, you know, astronomy and astrology kind of mixed together. Likely they were from Persia because that was really a hotbed of Zoroastrian astrology. Could have also been from Syria, Jordan because their spices really make sense from there. Um, Maybe they were from Babylon because in Babylon they would have kind of rubbed shoulders with the Jewish exiles and learned from them about their their religion. Um, And they came following a star. Some people have said this is like Halley's Comet or like a supernova. Most likely, actually, it was uh, the stars Saturn and Jupiter coincided um, three times in the first seven years before the BCE. So Jupiter was the star that represented royalty. And Saturn sometimes, you know, in their whole astrological system, sometimes represented the Jewish people. So the royal star and the Jewish star coincided, intersected. Like, oh, that's interesting. Let's see if there's anything. And then they they searched through these ancient texts, ancient prophecies. And we're like, let's find this earthly counterpart between Jupiter and Saturn, um, these two things coinciding. But these guys were clearly not Jewish. They were these pluralistic astrologers, astronomers, you know, knew a little bit about, you know, Jewish religion, a little bit about this religion, a little bit about that religion. They did not have all the right beliefs about God when they set out on their journey. Who here has all the right beliefs about God right now? Not, maybe, maybe some of you watching online, you're like, actually, you know, I'm pretty close. When I started following Jesus, I did not have all the right beliefs about God. All I knew was that I needed Jesus. I needed something more. And God was going to be the way to it. So the, the wise men, they're actually really great examples to us of a spiritual journey. They took whatever they knew. They followed it. They desired more. They obeyed. We want to follow their example a little bit this morning. So let's pray together, and then we'll dig in. Jesus, we thank you that you lead us and guide us into more of who you are. And it is your desire this Christmas season to show who you are, 
to reveal uh, in our hearts more of who you are. Not just at Christmas, all the time, Jesus. You come to us. You come to us. You don't just wait for us to feel extra spiritual or have free time. You're always coming to us, always invite us. So this morning, we present ourselves, we give you our time, our attention. We put aside distractions, other concerns. We give our distractions, we give our concerns to you, Jesus. And we turn our hearts to you. Would we follow uh, the example of people who have met you in amazing ways and say, Jesus, that is what we too desire. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we are in Matthew chapter 2. If you want to grab a Bible, we've got Bibles on the tables. Um, If you'd like a translation of the sermon notes in um, Portuguese or Spanish, that's in the back too. Um, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. At that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone else in Jerusalem. When Herod ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of the religious law and asked him, Where is this Messiah supposed to be born? He told him, in Bethlehem in Judea, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you, who will shepherd, who will be the shepherd for my people, Israel. Beautiful prophecy. They're kind of turning it around. But then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men. And he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I too can go and worship him. You know, the wise men might not have found Jesus if it had not been for Herod. They got themselves to Jerusalem. It was Herod who actually got them to Bethlehem. After this interview, the wise men went their way. And the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They worshipped him. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. Instead of following a star, God spoke to them personally through a dream. Instead of going back the same way, they went a different way. They left changed. You know, not all the the Jewish people accepted Jesus as... um, As people of Jerusalem, they should have been eagerly anticipating a Messiah coming king, and maybe this is him. They did not come. 
and worship Jesus. But these, these astrologers, these, you know, pagan from another land, they came and they worshiped Jesus. If we are really paying attention, we will be surprised by who accepts Jesus, by who really worships Jesus. And we will also be surprised by who doesn't. The wise men were led on this journey through false alternatives, using, you know, Herod, even in his opposition, to get them to where they were going. They followed whatever they knew through a difficult maze, and it led them to Jesus. The wise men show us the diversity of the people of Christ, ethnically, nationally, right? They were of different uh, ethnicities, spoken in a language. They show us the diversity of the people of God in terms of religious background and the welcome of Jesus to welcome and accept whoever will come to worship. But they came and they really, they worshiped. They brought him gifts of gold, which is a sign of kingship, you know, gold for, for a king. Um, frankincense, which was an incense uh, that was used in temples. It was a sign of divinity and myrrh, which was used for embalming uh, uh, dead. So they really claimed him as both, you know, king and, and God, human and divine, and leaned in to look towards his death in really just an amazing, amazing way as they worshiped with these three very significant gifts. You know, and as I, as I think about um, the wise men coming, you know, I'm always a little struck in the story of like the shepherds too. The shepherds see this, you know, whole choir host of angels and then they come and find the baby and worship the baby. And it just always makes me question just a little bit. I understand, you know, the wise men following, you know, these signs and they've got the natural phenomena um, coinciding with these ancient texts and, and uh, searching this out and then coming and seeing just this child, this ordinary child. And I always think a little bit like, you, you check it out, you follow, great, well, let's come back in 20 years and see what this kid has accomplished. But that's not what they do. They just say, okay, well, let's see how he grows up. Let's see what amazing things he can do as he gets older. They worshiped him as a child. Like, really, what's so amazing about a baby? I mean, I love babies. I love, like, the newborn baby smell. I love, like, their wide-eyed looks around. I may try to bore you with way too many pictures of my cute niece and nephew. Like, look at this baby. Isn't it so cute? But we've all seen cute babies. You know what I haven't experienced very often is, like, angels appearing to me in dreams or, like, being guided by stars to the exact spot. That's really amazing to me. What's so amazing about a child. He, he wasn't that cute, probably. He wasn't doing baby miracles. What's so amazing about a child that you bow down and worship? What did they see in the manger that impressed them that much? They came to find the king of the Jews. They, they worshiped him. And what they saw in that child somehow did not disappoint. They followed the naturally occurring phenomenon lining up with these, you know, scriptures. I think what they found was a very different kind of king. They'd been around kings. They'd been around important people. What they saw in this child was a very different kind of king. There's another king, another lord. What they had seen in Persian courts, that is not how 
It has to be. That is not what kingship looks like. That is not the best we have to hope in. They have another kind of king. I think that they were impressed that, like, this is how royalty behaves. This is how God acts. This is how the divine acts. Jesus emptied himself. He chose the way of poverty, of humility. He stood with sinners. He, he, the poor, those, the marginalized, both in his life and in his death. Jesus loved. He loved well until the end. You know, I think if they saw anything like supernatural, in that, that child himself, an ordinary one-year-old one child, I think they would have seen love. And there's something about real love that compels us. Real love has authority. I think there's something when we see real love poured out sacrificially, it is, it is compelling to us. Even in the, the stages, you see, oh, it's growing, it's, it's small, but aha, this is something that has power over my life. A God who would give himself, pour out, choose the vulnerable way, the vulnerable path of humility to be with us as ordinary people. That is a different kind of king. And the love in that is compelling. As Jesus walked the earth, he did not command armies, but he did command hearts. And we are changed because of love. Love is worth it. Love makes a statement. Love changes us. And I think they would have seen that in the manger. You know, I know that Jesus loves me. And ultimately, that's why I've followed him for all these years and made sacrifices because I know that Jesus loves me, that he's not just a God who is powerful, but that he's a God who cares and loves me. And that's a God I'm happy to sacrifice for, to live for, to worship. Love changes us. And there are a number of contrasts here in this story. There's the, you know, the contrast between um, people who should have known all about the coming Messiah who did not go and worship him, and then these foreigners of a different religion who did come and worship there's also the difference between the contrast between the wise men and Herod, their reaction. Um, Herod was apparently terrified of a baby, which, I mean, in fairness, Herod was kind of terrified of everything. Uh, he had two of his sons killed on suspicion of treason. Uh, he had his wife killed. Um, on his deathbed, he had his firstborn and favorite son killed because of jealousy. Um, someone... Augustus quipped that it was better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. He was kind of terrified of everything. But what's so scary about a baby? Come on, what's so scary about a baby? I think the same thing that's amazing about him. There is a different kind of king and a different kind of kingdom. Real power threatens false power. When a baby is born who is the rightful heir to the throne and the person on the throne is, is a poser, then it makes sense for the illegitimate monarch to be threatened by this, this new child. And Herods, in reality, they are never as powerful as they think they are. Herod was a pawn of the Roman government as Pilate would be after him. Herods are never as powerful 
as they think they are. The same way Pharaoh was threatened by Moses. Coercion is threatened by freedom. Hate is threatened by love. Herod is threatened by Jesus. And Herod will not kill Jesus. Pilate, however, will. Stanley Howard Ross says that the gospel is the story of a prophetic figure who suffers the worst the empire can inflict on him, execution by crucifixion, but in his resurrection, in his birth, and in his life, he exposes the limits of Roman power just by being born, by being alive, certainly by, by dying and coming back to life. He exposes the limits of any earthly power. In his birth, life, death, Jesus was a different kind of king with a different power, and that threatens every other power, especially political powers. Under the lordship of Jesus, we cannot pledge allegiance to anything else. Jesus is the king, and his coming brings a different kind of kingdom. And the confrontation is terrible. Read what happens next. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up. Flee to Egypt with the child and its mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. You know, if you feel like your uh, Christmas celebration is getting a little too um, sentimental or or cozy, um, some church traditions celebrate the Feast of the Innocents three days after Christmas. They read this story and celebrate it and dig into it. Rachel refuses to be comforted. Jesus will die. Jesus will rise again. His resurrection does not make these children any less dead or their parents any less heartbroken. Jesus' death and resurrection, though, do make it possible for us not to lie to ourselves about the terribleness of the world, but to also have hope for the world to come and hope for a better world here and now. Jesus' death and resurrection are not like a um, consolation for murdered babies. Well, you know, my child's dead, but at least Jesus is alive. It's a challenge to a world in which Real false power is threatened by real power, and a desire to hold on and grab on to, to power results in killing of innocence. Jesus' death and resurrection is a challenge. It's an affront to this system of fear and violence, that there is a new king and a different kind of kingdom. 
Herod was rightly afraid of the child Jesus. His kingdom of fear and death will be challenged by an alternate kingdom of life. What makes smart people worship a baby and cunning people afraid of a baby? There is a new king and a different kind of kingdom. Jesus' coming will change everything. The wise men, they walked through this journey, just taking what they knew, taking whatever they had, following whatever they knew, through false alternatives, through threats. They were led to Jesus, and that changed them. Worshiping Jesus changed them. They left by a different way. And God spoke to them directly in a dream when they met Jesus. You know, I think for us, Our kingdoms are are not as big or impressive or powerful as Herod's. But each one of us, myself included, has things that we are trying to hold on to. Things that we are trying to grasp onto. Uh, The irony of this was uh, at this this exact time that uh, Herod was trying so hard to grasp onto power. Uh, Historians tell us that he was actually dying a a slow, excruciating death. Um, He would die about three years later after this. What he was trying to hold onto was never his to keep. And it was coming to an end very soon. If we are willing to worship if we are willing to worship and lay down, God, Jesus is coming is nothing but good news for us. If we are trying to hold on to power, to control, then Jesus is coming is highly problematic for us. How do we meet God? We will not meet God under the kingship of our own ways. We will not meet God trying to hold on to our stuff, do things our way, keep ourselves in power and control. We meet God on his terms, in his ways, in a manger, not in a palace. We meet God on his terms, how he comes. For me, this means that I meet God not in my own kingdom, in my own power, where I'm in charge, where I'm in control. I do not meet God in the kingdom of control. And I like to be in control. When I feel like I'm not in control, I do not like it. And I try to get back in that place of control. Jesus says, he who loves his life will lose it. But he who gives up his life will find it. I've learned in so many little and big ways. The little ways of the inconveniences of life. People wanting this, you know, these demands, my stuff not working how I want, to surrender, to give up control. Because I will not find peace. I I won't find Jesus when I try to control. To surrender to his love, to take a deep breath and say, God loves me. He's in control, not me. I will not find God in the kingdom of busyness, I can do many things multitasking. Maybe I should not do so many things multitasking. I can do many things multitasking. However, I cannot meet God multitasking. I cannot pray and worry and be distracted about this. I cannot give my attention to Jesus in the scriptures while planning out my to-do list for the rest of the day. I cannot be busy and meet God at the same time. I want to give my full attention to Jesus. Um, 
the Catholic theologian uh, Rollheiser says, we are more busy than bad. And that is true. I care. I'm just too busy. It's not that I don't have empathy or care or whatever good thing. I'm just busy sometimes. It just passes me by. We are more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, more interested in the movie theater than in church. Pathological busyness, distraction, restlessness are major roadblocks within our spiritual lives. Busyness is bad for our souls, and our soul is where we meet Jesus. If my soul is just all this huge mess of distraction and confusion, I cannot meet God well in my soul. I will not meet God in the kingdom of power, in my own control. Theologian uh, Henry Nouwen says, Power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God, easier to control people than to love people, easier to own life than to love life. Force and power, diametrically opposed to surrender and receiving. I like to control things. I like to have power. But when I give up power, God becomes powerful in my life. We will meet God in the way of the wise men, just following what little we know, for one step after another step. If you are here today, I promise you, you know everything you need to know to step out and follow Jesus. Like, if you're here today and you're like, I never go to church, or like, I, I actually don't know enough. Actually, I think that's not true. Like, there's a cross there. There's, you know, you, you have the seeds, you have to take one step, to follow it, to take whatever you know and let it bring you to Jesus. Follow whatever you know, one step after another, but wanting more, desiring more. The wise men, they had to pack up, they had to search. It took some effort. It wasn't, oh, you know, and then when I follow Jesus, it'll just like miraculously overcome it. He'll do all the way. There takes some yearning and desire. And oftentimes God does meet us and surprise us, but they wanted more. They journeyed for it. Um, desire is the heart of spirituality. There's much we want in good spirituality, a deep prayer life, deep knowledge of the scriptures. But the foundation of all of that is wanting more of God, is a desire for Jesus. If we're kind of bled and uh, that's true spirituality, is a yearning and a desire for more of God. And then they obeyed. They obeyed because this is God we are talking about. There are many things where we have good intentions and don't, just don't quite follow through and make good on all of that. We're talking about God. We follow through. We obey. They took whatever they knew. They wanted more. And then they obeyed. They journeyed. They listened to, to counsel. They obeyed God in a dream. And it led them to a transformative journey with Jesus. If we believe scripture, if we follow the, the, the stars in our life, those occurrences and uh, uh, coincidences around us, it will lead us to Jesus. It will lead us to a very different kind of king and a very different kind of kingdom. And that is good news 
for us. Let's stand together. Worship team, if you guys want to come on back up. When we meet Jesus, we worship. So we're going to worship him today. Taking whatever we have, whatever we know, letting it lead us to Jesus, and we respond in worship. Because whatever real revelation we have of Jesus, it's good. And leads us to say, Jesus, you are so good. You are so gracious. You are so humble and kind. And we worship you. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you have come in reality. And that you have come spiritually with us here today, Jesus. We can take that to the bank. You are here. We can say that with utter confidence and certainty that you are here with us. And when we meet you in whatever small ways we may experience you this morning or big ways that we may experience you this morning, we respond with worship. You love us. You are good to us. You are here with us. You've made yourself available to us. And we say that's amazing. You are so, so good. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.